0: Hello there, and welcome back to Peace in Their Time, episode 145, The Mukden Incident. The year 1931 was not a good year for the whole concept of stability in Japan. The twin pressures of economic depression and foreign anxiety gripped the country, and the slow-moving Monsato-dominated government appeared too weak to properly address what were, to most Japanese, very pressing problems. And in the face of indifference at the center the most disaffected began to organize against it. The core anti-government sentiment came from nationalist military men, angry students, and farmers watching their whole world collapse. All of them were tired of the corruption in politics, as well as what they saw as attending to the interests of foreign partners before Japan's own. They called for a Showa restoration, Showa being a reference to the regal name of Hirohito, In a nutshell, they wanted to replicate the conditions of the increasingly mythologized Meiji Restoration. They wanted a society where enterprise would be used to enhance the national interest, not just chase profits. That politicians would promote harmony at home and expansion abroad. The corrupt ministers and advisors surrounding the emperor would be removed, and the emperor Showa would be properly empowered to guide the nation, which surely would mean that he would agree with them. It was a heady cocktail of ideas when compared to the hollowed-out liberalism of the era. The left had been so comprehensively dismantled that there were next to no other political spaces that people could turn to if they felt the existing system had failed. In looking to the example of the start of the Meiji era, these radicals were appealing to a simpler time when everyone was working towards the common good. They conveniently forgot the destruction of the samurai and those who had to bear the terrible brunt of industrialization from back in those days, or maybe they did remember and just didn't care. Most of them were ultranationalistic and favored an authoritarian response to the nation's problems, after all. Among the army, the desire for a Showa restoration split that grouping into two factions— The Imperial Way faction were the radicals who desired a break with status quo politics and a turn towards authoritarianism and expansionism. They're the guys who so often got sent to distant postings in the colonies when their voices grew too loud at home. Meanwhile, the more moderate control faction favored the army being hands-off of domestic politics and preferred influencing policy through the traditional system of consensus. Mind you, they were still conservative and nationalistic themselves, but of a more cautious, uh, traditional sort. With power seemingly locked up by the establishment elites, secret societies began to crop up among the ultranationalists. One such secret society that came together in the summer of 1930 was the Cherry Blossom Society, headed by Lieutenant Colonel Hashimoto Kingoro. The group consisted of a hundred or so members mixed between army officers and civilians. They plotted an uprising in Tokyo and also for target assassinations of major figures, all set for the late winter or early spring of 1931. But they were foiled when they approached General Ugaki Kazushuge to take over the prime minister spot after their hypothetical success. Ugaki, to his credit, saw that the society absolutely did not have the pull to accomplish such an ambitious goal and brushed them off. He certainly had political ambitions, but knew that realizing them via a coup probably wouldn't endear him to the other elites. Plus, it would make the army an open target if things didn't go well, which was almost a certainty. The society tried to have a go at it anyway, but their attempts to instigate some preliminary riots failed, and everybody just packed up and went home. Except those on the ground who tried to start the riots, they did get arrested. Ugagi, though, may not have supported the group, but he was sympathetic with them and intervened to prevent an investigation. Those arrested got off with light sentences. The slap on the wrist wasn't enough, and in October 1931, shortly after the Manchurian invasion we'll be covering in a moment, they tried again, this time approaching General Araki Sadao, who was seen as the chief of the Imperial Way faction. It was the same plan as before, but even Araki declined to support them and instead arrested the society's leaders but only briefly. He also sympathized with them, and they were only held for brief stints of a month or less, which was also enough time to dissolve the society and remove it as an annoyance. For Iraqi, the group probably wasn't necessary. With the Manchuria invasion well underway by October 1931, things were going exactly how he wanted. But this wasn't the only secret society, and there'd be more incidents in the near future. But for now, let's look at the lead-up to the Mukden incident. In Tokyo, things were breaking down. Last week, I covered how Prime Minister Hamaguchi was shot and, while he didn't immediately die, had to step down in April 1931 due to the refusal of his wounds to heal. His replacement was Wakatsuki Rijiro, which, for those of you with really good memories, will will remember popping up last season as a replacement prime minister for Keito Takaki when he suddenly passed away, which I guess makes uh, Wakatsuki kind of a pinch hitter in Japanese politics. Unfortunately, That wasn't quite what the nation demanded at so delicate a moment, and his stay-the-course stance didn't endear him to many. That he had been a delegate to the London Naval Conference the year before also made him a bitter enemy of the military. With the government appearing weaker than ever, members of the Imperial Way faction saw their moment to move. The Japanese army was well-positioned for a strike into Manchuria. There were two armies of occupation on the Asian mainland, the Garrison Army in Korea and the Kwantung Army stationed on the Liaodong Peninsula of Northeast China. The Manchurian warlord, Zhang Zhulang, referred to as the Young Marshal to differentiate him from his father, Zhang Zuolin, was in a precarious position. While he had officially merged his inherited warlord faction, the Fengtian Clique, into the KMT under Chiang Kai-shek's authority, Zhang was effectively still an independent player. This wasn't necessarily a positive when dealing with the Japanese. On account of Manchuria's distance from Chiang's power centers of Nanjing and Shanghai, Zhang couldn't expect quick support from the south. On top of that, Chiang's continued feuding with the remaining warlords and campaigns against the communists tied down the bulk of the KMT's armies far away from Manchuria. Then there was the fact that his father's long wars over northern China across the 20s and his own fiasco versus the Soviets in 1929 had pretty well wrecked a lot of his armies. Oh, he still had close to half a million men under arms on paper, but a great many of his best troops and equipment had been expended. And speaking of expended, the region's finances were a disaster with multiple paper currencies in play, all of them being nearly worthless due to overprinting to try and pay for all the military expenditures. Much of the Fengtian's investments had gone into weapons manufacturing, which would have been worth it had the faction actually won their wars. Now being confined to Manchuria, those weapon industries did not prove to be economic boons. Meanwhile, Zhang's relations with the Japanese were not doing great his father had been an unruly client warlord at the best of times which contributed to his being murdered by them in a train bombing understandably this did not endear the young marshal to the japanese thing was he had no choice but to deal with them most of the investment coming into manchuria was from japanese businesses and they controlled the south manchurian railway as well i mentioned Zhang going to war briefly against the soviets and it had been over the north manchurian railway well, the Japanese, for their part, controlled the southern sections of the line. Under Japanese control, the railway was managed by a single company, mentetsu whose operations went way beyond running trains. The company effectively became an offshore zaibatsu, as it diversified into mining, shipping, warehousing, hotels, ceramics, oil, steel, electric companies farms of all kinds, and even ran public services and collected taxes within the area around the railroad that fell under its jurisdiction. It was the biggest Japanese company in existence and didn't even have any operations in Japan. I'm going to talk in more detail about how Manchuria was kind of an economic Wild West in an upcoming episode, but keep in mind that it had been that way before the region even came under occupation. In 1906, the civilian Japanese population in Manchuria was around 16,000. By 1930, it was over 230,000, a third of them directly employed by Mentetsu and almost all the rest running businesses that serviced those employees. The scale of the investment made Zhang dependent on the Japanese to keep his own economy going. This dependence had begun to be reduced by him continuing his own father's policies of building parallel railroads and port facilities to compete with Mentetsu, but unfortunately that just enraged Japanese colonial officials who saw it as a betrayal of their friendship. Yeah, after all they had managed to obtain on very favorable terms, the Japanese in Manchuria still found a way to get outraged. Despite those moderate successes for Zhang, the Japanese presence was inescapable and was a cause for a lot of resentment from him and Chinese nationalists in general. After all, the operations of Mantetsu might have been managed by their Japanese employees, but the actual labor and blue-collar work was performed almost entirely by Chinese. The resentment was something the officers in the Kwantung Army definitely noticed, and they came increasingly to believe that direct control was preferable to relying on the good graces of the Chinese plans started to be be drawn up among the Kwantung officers to move into Manchuria before the situation turned too far against them. The summer of 1931 also conveniently had a couple of incidents that helped ratchet up tensions. The first was the Nakamura incident, where a Japanese intelligence officer, Captain Nakamura Shintaro, was found traveling along the border with Mongolia, claiming to be an agricultural expert. The soldiers who found him discovered he was carrying weapons and surveying instruments and assumed he was a spy. He was arrested on June 27th, and on July 1st, the soldiers made the snap decision to shoot him as a spy. The other incident of note, happening at roughly the same time, was the Wenboshin incident, which involved a dispute over water rights between 200 Korean farmers sent to eastern Manchuria under Japanese auspices versus Chinese landowners. The Chinese started harassing the Koreans, whom the Japanese cynically considered full Japanese citizens in this case. In every other scenario, they were abused second-class citizens, but when they could be used as a cudgel to bait the Chinese into a losing fight, they were full Japanese. Things escalated to where on July 1st, 400 Chinese farmers started a mob and tried to attack the Koreans, But by the time this got underway, Japanese police moving in from across the Korean border arrived on the scene and drove the Chinese off. Yes, Japanese police operated on Chinese soil without a care in the world. The whole thing was minor stuff, honestly, and shouldn't have been important, except for the fact that papers in both Japan and Korea reported that hundreds of Korean farmers had been killed, which incited a load of violence across Korea against Chinese nationals. 140 Chinese died in these riots, with hundreds more injured. In Japan, after news broke of both incidents, the public believed that the Chinese were out of their minds and Manchuria was becoming lawless. The Kwantung Army, or at least its mid-level officers, took this as their cue to commit to forcing an invasion. The mastermind behind orchestrating the Manchurian invasion was Colonel Ishiwara Kanji, with support from the Kwantung's intelligence chief, Colonel Itagaki Seishiro. Ishiwara was a fiery thinker who gladly took the assignment on the Asian mainland with the Kwantung army. He was a member of a small sect of Buddhism that espoused that in the future, there would be a titanic world conflict that would scour the earth of the defeated and leave in its place a land of internal peace. He resolved to ensure that Japan would not be among the defeated, and in his eyes, this would require the resources of an enormous empire. From the start of his posting on the mainland in 1928, he hungrily looked north to enact his vision. By summer of 1931, he felt that the time had come. The government in Tokyo was unpopular, and the global depression had brought the West to its knees. The Soviets were deep into their five-year plan, which demanded its leadership's full attentions. Chang was still insecure in his position in central China. In short, if Japan was going to launch a war of aggression, then was the perfect time. The idea was to cause an incident that would justify an invasion first, though. Captain Kawamoto Samore was dispatched to the Manchurian capital of Mukden, modern-day Shenyang, on the evening of September 18th. On the railway line on the northern outskirts of the city, the captain placed 42 explosive charges on the railway and detonated them. The explosion was timed to coincide with the Darien Express passing by just a few minutes later. The derailment would be blamed on the machinations of Zhang acting against the Japanese presence. The Darien Express passed by right on time, but didn't derail. The rail cars all cleared the missing track with a little swaying, but nothing more. Kawamoto didn't care about the lack of a dramatic scene. He radioed in that his unit had engaged with hostile Chinese forces. That much was kind of true, as his unit did take some pot shots at the Chinese garrison nearby before withdrawing. General Hanjo Shigeru, the actual commander of the Kwantung, ordered that his soldiers stationed along the South Manchurian Railway begin occupying the cities along the railway. This included Mukden and many of the major cities in Manchuria. Zheng, probably at a loss of what to do and how to combat the Japanese, ordered his soldiers to withdraw. Chiang Kai-shek grasped that confrontation with the Japanese at that moment would end in an embarrassing defeat for him, and so ordered a general policy of non-confrontation. Zhang's troops would not offer resistance. With no crippling defeats, the focus of international discourse could be solely about Japanese aggression. Within two days, the Kwantong had secured cities as far as Changchun, 250 miles north of the Korean border. Wakatsuki immediately summoned his cabinet on the morning of the 19th as news about what happened filtered into Tokyo. From reports they were receiving, They knew full well that there had been no Chinese provocation, and the fault was entirely with the Kwantung. And now that that aggressive act was finally underway, many of the generals present for the meeting were uneasy about what they were unleashing. The official word from Tokyo on the 19th was for troops to stand fast and not expand their operations beyond the railway and the cities already taken. The government took a public stance of non-aggression and indicated that the troops that had been deployed would eventually be withdrawn. Ishiwara, effectively in the driver's seat as the officers in the Kwantung army threw in with him, quickly moved to scuttle these plans coming from Tokyo. He dispatched operatives to incite harassment against Japanese nationals living in Jilin, about 70 miles east of Changchun. After getting word of some nebulous harassment, Ishiwara and his supporters on the 21st requested that Hanzhou defy Tokyo's orders and send in additional troops. Anjo initially refused, citing orders coming directly from the defense minister, but his junior officers confined him to his office and begged, prodded, and badgered him all through the night. The old general finally broke down out of exhaustion and told them they could do whatever they wanted to do. The next day, Guangdong troops entered Jilin. Meanwhile, troops from the Korean garrison got into the action and advanced north of the Yalu River on their own initiative. Manchuria is dominated by three provinces— Liaoning in the south, Jilin province in the center, and Heilongjiang in the north. With the fall of Mukden and Jilin city, the first two provinces effectively passed to Japanese control. Ishiwara declared both provinces independent and severed from China. Wakatsuki didn't know what to do about all this. The army's high command might have been miffed about being disobeyed, but they didn't want to start an interfactional conflict over it. Since, hey, even members of the control faction were probably a little pleased that Japanese soldiers were taking so much ground without a fight. Then there was the matter of public opinion. Japanese correspondents were with the troops every step of the way, and the cameras were rolling from day one. Footage was constantly being flown in, and starting on the 21st, public showings of films filled with the images of victorious Japanese soldiers were played for applauding crowds. Newspapers went with the Kwantung's version of events and blamed the Chinese once again as being out of control. Finally, on the 24th, days after the fact, Wakatsuki convened his cabinet again and retroactively authorized Jilin's occupation. He again confirmed that Japan did not intend a full occupation and was merely looking out for its interests. It was all basically a police action, and he looked forward to working with Chang and the Chinese government on how to resolve the issue. In reality it was obvious the Kwantung army was completely out of Tokyo's control. This pattern of approving aggression after the fact would happen constantly in the following months. On October 8th, Ishiwara ordered the bombing of Jinzhou, a city about 150 miles southwest of Mukden. No real reason, just a pointless show of force against a city that wasn't even garrisoned with military targets. Again, Tokyo gave its nervous approval. At the end of October, a detachment of Chinese troops defied their orders and attacked a group of Japanese railway technicians in the city of Chichar, the capital of Longjing province. Tokyo asked Ishiwara to send in some troops as protection, and he took over the entire city. The town's occupation would be the first appearance of Chinese collaboration troops that would eventually become the Manchukuan army. It would not be an auspicious start for them. One Zhang Haiping Commanded a force of Manchurian troops that had gone over to the Japanese at the start of the invasion and attempted to enter Chichihar. The local garrison, though, did the fake surrender bit and ambushed the traitorous Zhang Haiping, sending his forces scurrying and blowing a bridge vital to getting into the city. The Japanese would have to cede to the situation directly in early November. They were able to scatter the Chinese and get the bridge fixed up, but that initial battle would highlight a dilemma. The Manchurians would have to offer some support in policing the new conquest, as the Japanese themselves lacked the manpower to be everywhere at once. Or worse, had to be deployed against the Chinese or Soviets directly. But finding good collaborators was never an easy job, and the record of such soldiers was always going to be poor. One way that Ishiwara and his followers thought might inspire some fighting spirit was in creating an actual state that could be fought for. Even the Imperial Way officers thought that a conquest the size of Manchuria was simply too much for them to process all at once. After all, the region was larger than the state of Texas, and despite Japanese colonization, was overwhelmingly Chinese. Then there was the issue of the rest of China still being right there under Chiang Kai-shek's leadership. Cheng might have been playing a delaying game to buy time and modernize the core areas of China to where he could feel the modern army go toe-to-toe with the invaders, but he did not renounce the provinces. Japan would be an occupying force and could not secure their territory via a treaty at that moment. It would be a dangerous game for Cheng to play as the passions of his nation were tilted heavily towards immediate confrontation. Protests would break out all over China during that autumn and winter, and Chinese nationals would pack up and leave Japan. Still, Chang kept a cool head as he realized that the time wasn't ripe for a showdown while his army still needed an overhaul and was currently being bogged down fighting the communists. Instead, on September 20th, 1931, just days into the invasion, Chang protested to the League of Nations and asked for them to arbitrate the dispute between the two countries. In November, a commission was dispatched under the command of the British Lord Lytton to head out east and assess the situation. It might sound ridiculous that a fact-finding mission was needed given the circumstances, but the gears of the League turned slowly. Zhang was comfortable with that, though, as he understood his case needed to be rock-solid. The big question mark was how Japan would respond to international censure and how far they would allow themselves to be isolated. The other question was if the League could act before the situation spiraled out of control. The fact-finding mission sent by the League would be preempted by what initially became known as the Shanghai Incident, but was later renamed the first Shanghai Incident, as it later turned out the Japanese weren't satisfied with just the one. On January 18, 1932, a group of Japanese Buddhist monks, part of the same vaguely apocalyptic sect that Ishiwara belonged to, decided to march down the streets of Shanghai and smack-talk the Chinese there. They promptly got their asses beat by some factory workers, one badly enough that he died. A Japanese mob then burnt down the factory that the Chinese men had worked at in retaliation, which killed two Chinese. A policeman was later killed when authorities arrived to try and stop the resulting street fighting. The monk's connection to Ishiwara's sect was not a coincidence. The incident was engineered by the Kwantung army to take the focus off of Manchuria for a little while. Their plan worked, though maybe not in the way the Kwantung might have hoped. The local Chinese, in retaliation, launched boycotts of every Japanese business in the latter country's quarter of town within Shanghai, and you could be sure that protesters showed up to ensure those embargoes were enforced. On January 28, 1932, the Municipal Council of the Foreign Settlement declared a state of emergency and Japanese marines were deployed into the city, some 3,000 in total. In addition, planes and warships were at the ready offshore to support the marines. The Chinese garrison in Shanghai was the 19th Route Army, which was expected to withdraw in the face of Japanese deployments throughout the city. The invaders got a rude shock, though, when they actually fought back. The marines were heavily outnumbered by the 19th Route Army, and they called in for help. Bombers launched from aircraft carriers quickly appeared over the skies and started indiscriminately bombing Shanghai, save for the foreign concession in the Japanese areas, of course. This was an intrusion that Cheng could not abide, and he mobilized his army for a fight. Fearing a full-scale invasion, he moved the capital out of Nanjing, 450 miles to the northwest, to the city of Luoyang, much further into the interior. A ceasefire was temporarily put into effect, but that just gave both sides time to shuttle in reinforcements. On the Japanese side, regular army units landed, while Cheng deployed two of his best divisions, specially trained by German advisors and equipped mostly to their standards. By February 14th, both sides were in place. On the 20th, the Japanese opened their offensive with artillery and airstrikes against the 19th Route Army in the suburbs northwest of the city proper it was a grinding urban battle in tattered city streets that will become a depressingly common image that I portray on this show. Initially, the Japanese saw some progress, but were pushed out of their slight gains on the 22nd. Not wanting to get stuck in urban fighting and probably a little put off at the resistance of the Chinese, the Japanese regrouped and leveraged their air and artillery advantage. Heavy bombardments were utilized before any advance and by the 28th, the outlying suburbs had finally been taken. This wasn't exactly a thrilling success, though, as the Japanese had been forced to throw in everything they had to take a few miles of ground, and while their troop size had expanded to 30,000 men, they were not interested in a drawn-out land campaign. Thing was, though, they had to humble the Chinese somehow, and despite their material and qualitative advantages— well, the Chinese in response could just cycle units out and replace them with fresh ones, which prevented a big breakthrough. The Japanese opted to play a card that the Chinese couldn't respond to, though. The city of Shanghai sits on the Yangtze River, which flows way further inland westwards. The Japanese staged a naval invasion from the Yangtze further to the west, landing troops directly behind the Chinese defenses on March 1st. Now, caught in a vice between the beachhead and the guys coming from Shanghai, the Chinese were finally forced to abandon the area and retreat south. Sporadic fighting would continue for the next two weeks, but the Japanese didn't push much further, and the League of Nations was able to broker a ceasefire. The final agreement to end the fighting was only signed there on May 5th and made Shanghai a demilitarized zone for the Chinese, while the Japanese could maintain a presence consisting of a handful of marines. Uh, This was something of an embarrassment for Chang, as he no longer could maintain his own military presence in the city, although his government still controlled the non-foreign parts. The Japanese were given some pause over the battle. They had been forced to commit massive resources for little gain. Moreover, their theoretically superior army had been held up capably by Chinese soldiers that suffered from some dire equipment shortages and had only overcome their foes by exploiting their control of the sea. International opinion hailed the Chinese as heroes, and Cheng became seen as a leader who the West could back against the Japanese and expect results. While global attention was diverted to Shanghai, the Kwantung army had not been idle. Going back to the problem what to do with Manchuria now that they had it, Ishiwara and his followers hit upon the central idea that Japan would utilize when dealing with conquests across Asia. They'd set up client states, or puppet states if you want to be mean about it, which you probably should be since these governments are all going to be totally in the thrall of the Japanese state. A puppet government would create the veneer of autonomy for the subject peoples while also keeping power concentrated in hands, controlled from elsewhere. It would also give opportunities for collaborators to present themselves for service while giving them at least a shred of cover over their motives. A show committee of local Manchurian governors convened on February 16, 1932, right around the time that Chinese and Japanese soldiers were marshalling around Shanghai. They declared their intention of creating the new state of Manchukuo, with an official start date of March 1st. The chief executive of the new nation would be Puyi, whom you should remember as being a minor figure during the China miniseries last year. He had been the last emperor of the Qing dynasty while being only a boy, and after the old empire fell, he had bounced around detainment in North China, eventually falling into the hands of the Japanese. He had been living in their concession within the city of Tianjin, keeping a court of dead-enders and entertaining the false promises of help from men like the dogbeat General Zhang Zhongcheng and Grigory Semenov, one-time warlord of Cheetah during the Russian Civil War. On the eve of the Manchurian invasion, though, the Japanese saw him as a useful puppet and shuttled him north. Colonel Idagagi, the Kwantong Intelligence Chief and in Ishiwara's partner in crime, informed Puyi that they were making him head of the Manchukuo Republic, The basis of this was that the Qing dynasty originated with the Manchu people, the main inhabitants of Manchuria centuries previous. And the Qing had always treated it as a special preserve, even after their Manchu heritage had faded. At first, Puyi was hesitant. He wasn't big on the whole republic idea, as he wanted to be emperor. Itagaki implied that his title could be upgraded in the future, but that also the young, weak-willed, and honestly completely out-of-his-depth man really didn't have a choice, which, hey, at least the title bump did eventually go his way. Exactly two years later, in March 1934, he was proclaimed emperor and Manchukuo an empire. He even got to marry a relative of Hirohito and be considered a junior emperor to the supreme one, which was more than the other puppet states got. That isn't to say that Puyi had any power, Oh, no, no. Uh, supreme power in land would be the Kwantung Army first, the Mentetsu Company second, and Manchunkuo authorities a distant third. It would be the army's show from there on out, as even when the government in Tokyo set up a Manchurian bureau to manage affairs there, the army swooped in and claimed leadership of it. Understandably, given the circumstances of its creation, international recognition was slow to materialize for the new state and was concentrated to those wanting to get on Japan's good side. America led the way for the West when on January 7th, 1932, well before the new state had even been declared, that the United States would refuse to recognize any form of Japanese occupation, whether it was a puppet state or direct annexation, which set the example for most of the rest of the world to follow. And just because Manchukuo was established didn't mean the struggle was over. Far from it. There were still plenty of Chinese remnant armies out there in the remote parts of the vast land, and Zhang Zhuleng launched a guerrilla war in the no-man's land between southern Manchuria and China north of the Great Wall. Meanwhile, back in Japan, the nation's politics were in chaos, and political violence and threats of a coup abounded. There was that pesky League investigation poking around as well. And finally, there was the business of how to actually exploit Manchukuo now that they finally had it. We'll be taking a look at most of those topics next week, so join me then, and as always, thank you very much, for listening.